And now to introduce our speaker, I am joined today by Dr. Pritham Raj. He is a practicing internist and psychiatrist. Originally from Maryland, Dr. Raj uh, completed undergrad at the Johns Hopkins University and then medical school at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Dr. Raj went on to do residency in both internal medicine as well as psychiatry at Duke University Medical Center where he served on faculty until 2006 before joining us out here in Portland. Uh, Dr. Raj has been a clinician educator with OHSU for the past 15 years, serving as the medical director of the internal medicine practice. And in addition, uh, he has recently come to serve as the chief medical officer at Active Recovery Transca Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation. Uh, we always appreciate Dr. Raj's generosity with his time and his expertise. Uh, welcome back to the Providence community. And it is awesome to have a somewhat of a live audience. This is great. I'm, I'm tired of just talking to cameras, right? So uh, thank you for being here. And for those of you who are not able to be here, thank you for joining in. As uh, Laura just mentioned, um, Preetham Raj, if I don't get to your questions, because your questions are really the most important, and for the live uh, audience members here, please interrupt me. I I'm a teacher, so I love to just break down and just what's practical to you, because I could drone on and on about medications, but I really want to make it practical for what you face every day in your practice. But uh, for the audience uh, out there, uh, my email address is here if I don't get to your question. But again, I'm going to stop hard stop 10 minutes before we're done too to be able to answer your questions i'll get my disclosures out of the way uh if any of you are uh, participating in the med study board review course guess who your lecturer is going to be <laughs> um I, i'm giving the psychiatry lecture for the internal medicine board review they just tabbed me to do that so uh and if you if any of you are, are using that program you'll get to hear me drone on about that as well um, I am an advisor, I was recently asked to join an advisory group uh, for ASI, which uh, is dealing with the very controversial drug aducanumab for Alzheimer's dementia. And since uh, my research for many years was in mild cognitive impairment, they asked me as an internist to serve on their advisory uh, board. But there's been a lot of uh, public uh, um, you know, uh, debate about that medication. And as uh, Laura mentioned, I'm a salaried employee at Active Recovery TMS. So if you end up referring patients for TMS with uh, our six clinics that, that I operate, um, I don't get any kickback on that. So it's I'm a, I'm a full salaried employee there. Uh, we will be getting into esketamine, which I will mention briefly. Uh, if any of you are familiar with Spravato, the nasal version of ketamine, um, that, that is uh, emerging. And so I'll, I'll update you on that as well. I'm often asked when I give these talks, hey, are, is there good books uh, that uh, are out there? And the one on the right, so I've contributed, if, if any of you are students, the one on the left, uh, the behavioral medicine, uh, these both came out in 2020, but I contributed the depression and somatic symptom disorder chapter in that one. That's a that's the thicker book um, uh, with a lot of background uh, on, on mental disorders. Uh, the UCSF campus uses that for their med school training, et cetera. Um, but this is much more practical. This uh, primary care psychiatry book is designed for non-psychiatrists to have a practical kind of knowledge about kind of what do I need to know now? And that again is pretty new and I wrote the uh, bipolar disorder chapter. So the question 
first that we must ask is why is a medical grand rounds on psychotropics important? Well, guess what? You are the de facto mental health system for Oregon. 40% of what you guys see as internists is psychiatry, right? Is is psychiatrically based. And so let's look at what's happening in Oregon. This is last year's number. We're waiting on, on this year's from Mental Health America. We consistently rank in the bottom 10 for mental health care in this state. And I was moving from a rural state of North Carolina. I thought, you know, things would be way better out here, out west, you know, where we're progressive. Let's look at the let's look at the numbers. Where do we rank in 2020? Second to last. And this is 51, including the District of Columbia. And that's what we're dealing with. So really, a talk like this is so important for you all because you're doing the bulk of the work. I get to, one of my biggest passions is my med psych training clinic. That I, So all the internal medicine residents at OHSU get to come through my clinic um, in their intern year and, and get baptized into all of the med psych training that they'll need to know. Just I cram it in there of, of like, hey, why do we pick this antidepressant? Why do we um, you know, use this antipsychotic? And what do you need to know as an internist? We spend time on that practical stuff. And if I know you have a big residency program here, I, I, I love to teach. So if, if, if you, know, you wanna bring me back to do teaching for the residents, happy to do that at some point as well. What is the pandemic doing to our collective mood? We see that depression rates, since we're talking about depression, it's quadrupled. The, the rates of depression, depressive disorder has quadrupled since 2019 to, to the pandemic. TSRD is trauma and stress-related disorders, 25% rise in that. One in 10 are reporting that they've increased substance use because of COVID. And you've seen the alcohol sales numbers went up 55% March 2020 versus March 2019. You saw that and, and we're seeing it in the unity uh, and, and I'm sure in your uh, uh, inpatient units, you're seeing a lot of uh, rise of, of substance use disorders and even SI, suicidal ideation has gone up. That's very debatable because it's hard to look at the numbers and, and really know uh, what to make out of them, but, but we think that suicide is on the rise as well. And I think it gets back to, I mean, we were talking about quarantine, right? We have to quarantine. And uh, I love this quote by Blaise Pascal, all men's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. Pretty true, pretty true. We struggle with that, sit quietly. But I love this Time Magazine article that just came out uh, a couple of weeks ago because it's talking about the post-pandemic psychology and, and the article is aptly named, why everyone is so rude right now. Have you noticed this? Have you noticed this? It's, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, I, I see it all the time when we're just out in public. And I think it gets back to, you know, this whole idea of some people feel that the restrictions were unnecessary and they're resentful about it. And so the, the quote at the end is by a psychologist because there's a lot of fight or flight that's out there and half the people fear COVID, but the other half of the people feel that they're being controlled. And so you bring those two together and what happens is this conflagration in between, right? So it's just sparking this uh, rudeness that I think we're seeing right now. And that's the psychology, I called it post-pandemic. I'm hoping we're getting towards post-pandemic now because uh, I was just telling Laura, man, I've, I don't, I've gotten all the vaccines I know how to get. So uh, hopefully we're gonna simmer down. Um, what is the best mechanism turning now to depression to explain 
when we try to treat depression, what pathway are we really trying to target? Most of us think about the monomine hypothesis, right? We're going to increase monomine levels, whether it be serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine, etc. We're trying to raise that. But is that too simplistic? I think it might be because we're looking at pathways such as NMDA antagonism. Anybody know, since I have a live audience, anybody know um, a medication that, that is using the NMDA pathway? Because I'll teach you one, and I mentioned it earlier. Esketamine. Esketamine uses the NMDA pathway. GABA receptor positive allosteric modulation, so GABA modulation we have some products for postpartum depression. It's called Brexanolone. I'll mention that really quickly. It's an intravenous, but they're looking at oral versions. BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor hypothesis, that is behind all of the naturopathic efforts behind curcumin. You've heard of people using you know, turmeric. I mean, in Indian cooking, I, I throw it all in there, right? Right? And we've been using that pathway for years. So, so I would suggest you guys think about that pathway because it does raise BDNF um, and exercise does the same thing. Corticotropic rele corticotropin releasing factor, we've just talked about stress and what's happening in the pandemic. Um, that is a stress pathway and electrical signaling. It's what I harness when I do transcranial magnetic stimulation. So you can see the pathway is not just mono means anymore we're we're really getting to other pathways that are important for us to understand when we're communicating that to patients hey how does this work you know what 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 is this medication doing in my system okay let me turn really quickly though to a clinical case because i want to make it uh make it practical so depressed i never get to use fun names in, in book chapters i write so she's a 61 year old woman with a history of stage one hypertension who presents complaining of increased stress, poor sleep, and worsening mood during the pandemic. Sound familiar? That's a lot of folks, right? Her vital signs are normal, but she has been gaining weight. Are you all seeing patients gaining weight during the pandemic? So another area of, of research of mine uh, was I was a primary investigator at Duke with uh, the medicine called Contrave, if you've heard of that. It's a combination of bupropion and naltrexone. Um, and uh, we're, so I, I still troll the, the, the weight literature out there. And we're seeing about 57% of people um, are, sorry, did I say 57? 37% of people are gaining weight to the tune of about 12 pounds. Uh, uh, during the pandemic is what the latest re reports are. But ironically, 25% are losing weight because they're eating healthier. So we've got a little bit of a balance there going on, uh, but majority are gaining weight. So that's what we're seeing here. So what would be your next move? For the live audience, I want you to think for a minute, what would you do for Miss Prest? Since we're gonna deal with some multiple choice answers here, here I'm gonna give you some, some options to mull. First, fluoxetine, because it was the first SSRI. Maybe you're going to think old school, or maybe you trained at the VA where they're still using that pretty much first line. Citalopram, because you read the STAR-D trial. Psychotherapy, because you know a board answer when you see it. Physical activity, because you like natural options. Or TMS, because you saw me on TV advertising it during Jeopardy. 
I get all those calls all the time. Hey, man, we see you on TV. Which one would you start with? Think, think to yourselves. Because I want to back it with a little bit of a timeline for antidepressant therapy. I think this gives us good context for, for where we are. So in the 1950s was really the advent of antidepressant therapy. Now, in the 50s, if any of you have seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that came out in 1975 for you movie buffs, it was actually depicting the state hospital here in Oregon in the 50s. Okay, so in the 50s where this this burst of, of energy in terms of medications was coming out, but they were still, as the movie reminds us, were using electric shock therapy, right, T uh, ECT. So um, that was going on. It was a little bit barbaric is how they, they certainly presented it in the media of like, you know, using it almost punitively, right? Uh, and, and apparently I was giving a talk in, in Salem and they have a museum now, I didn't realize this, dedicated to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest uh, with all of the memorabilia and stuff. So if you're ever down Salem way, I, I hear it's, uh, I need to go check it out myself. But in 1950, that's when ipronizide and imipramine, so the first monoamine oxidase inhibitor and the first TCA kind of burst on the scene. And in the 1960s, then it increased in number, but still mainly MAOIs and TCAs. But then in the 70s, you saw a reemergence of ECT because all the bad press, you know, kind of uh, about that treatment kind of was more medicalized and packaged in a more safe way to deliver it. And then in the 1970s, you saw this ECT reemergence. By the way, for any of you uh, also who, who remember the movie A Beautiful Mind, John Forbes Nash, remember? Did he get ECT? You remember from the movie? I'm seeing heads nod. He did, but it was insulin shock therapy. So back then they were using insulin shock. So they would drive somebody's sugar way down until they seized. And then they snake an NG tube, pump it full of, you know, a, a glucose slurry and, and get the sugar back up. And then that's how they would treat John Forbes Nash. Isn't that interesting? Um, and patients loved it actually, because then they were allowed to eat as much cake and, and, and goodies as they wanted. So it was kind of an interesting dynamic there. But 1986, fluoxetine came on the scene. So we've had SSRI therapy now for 35 years, 35 years, but well within my lifetime. Then in 1993, venlafaxine, the first SNRI, serotonin norepinephrine, burst on the scene. And 2008 was when TMS was FDA approved. And I was doing some research trials at Duke in 2006, and um, we we weren't really sold on that technology. It was not like ECT. ECT, just FYI, is still the gold standard for depression treatment. The gold standard. I would say TMS may be the silver standard and medications, you know, with that, uh, you know, along with there in, in kind of a, a bronze medal position. But in 2019, we've seen a burst of these other pathways that I just mentioned, the glutamatergic NMDA pathways. Does that help with kind of the background of, of, of where we've come uh, with antidepressant therapy? So I see some younger folks in the audience. And so I, I always want to make sure we leave here with a, at least a crude understanding of the STAR-D trial. I know it's, it's, it's uh, old hat for a lot of you because this came out in 2006. But everybody here heard about the STAR-D trial? Most people, I still see some hands not up because that's why I put this slide in here. So STAR-D essentially really quickly largest real world trial that has ever been done in 
mental health for treating depression. So that's why it's it's important. Real world, real world meaning it's like our patients. People could be drinking alcohol, using marijuana, and enrolled in this study, not selected out. Okay, so everybody brought in 4,000 some patients, a lot of medical, the predominance was actually medical settings and then some psychiatric settings as well, put everybody on citalopram. Now, if that study was done today, they would have pr probably picked a different drug, but they picked citalopram and the average dose was 41.8 milligrams and it took about 47 days. So really, when you treat somebody pharmacologically with depression, is it a, I get better this way no, it's parabolic. I don't see anything. I don't see anything. Week two, week three, week four, five, and six is where you see the rise, typically. Now, you see some people out of the gate, you know, some of that's placebo effect, et cetera, but the majority, it's, it's this. And that's very un-American, right? That's why we lose a lot of patients. We, 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 we as a society want to get well yesterday, right? Give me something that's going to work right now, right away. I don't want to wait weeks because I feel miserable. I get it. But we're, we're talking about growing a garden, right? You can't plant a seed and expect it to pop up the next day. It's got to be patience. And the more we talk to our patients about the importance of patience, that's where I think we, we get a, a, a lot more people staying on the meds we prescribe, right? And so you, you tell them it's going to take about four weeks and, and give them this, this visual. It's going to be like this, not like this, not like this. It's going to be like this. And and that's what essentially they saw. It, it took longer duration than the researchers anticipated to get people to where they were. And you see about 30% remission rate. I'm a glass half full kind of guy, and I think that's pretty good. 30% of the patients put on citalopram went into remission. Not, not just somewhat better, but virtual absence of symptoms. That's pretty darn good. And then they switch them to either bupropion, sertraline, or venlafaxine, different med classes, and I put those on there. And you can see, I, I, I gave you the answer. It didn't matter which med you switched to, all of the outcomes were the same. So the really the moral of the 2006 New England Journal article on the STAR-D trial was pick a drug, any drug. They all work about the same. Now, we in psychiatry thought it was, a, that's a little too simplistic, right? There are nuances, you know, there, there's why do we pick one med versus another? But here's the second round of that uh, STAR-D trial where they augmented, they added bupropion or buspirone, which is not even FDA approved in depression. It's an anxiety medicine. And they found the remission rates, the cognitive therapy, I didn't put it on the slide, but all of those remission rates were pretty much equal. So if you switch or augment, it was pretty much the same in, in both pathways. So here's a start E question. This is what I'm gonna ask you guys. Which of the following medications is most likely to cause QTC prolongation? And these are all meds that were used in the STAR-D trial. So one, bupropion, two, sertraline, three, buspirone, four, citalopram, or five, venlafaxine. How many takers for bupropion? Nobody? Oh, one, maybe, maybe. Sertraline, nobody. Buspirone, okay. A couple of hands are going up for buspirone. Citalopram, okay, most of the hands. And venlafaxine, any takers? All right, 
you are right, the citalopram ones. And that's why this medicine wouldn't have been used if the STAR-D trial was done today. That average of 41.8 milligrams, I told you, is higher than the prescribed dosing recommendations now. It's 40 milligrams is the cap because of this issue that emerged later in, in 2011, I believe. And these studies were done in the early 2000s. So board answer, I gave you guys, this question's gonna be on there. Um, for, for those of you still doing boards and research, citalopram, QTC uh, interval, we need to monitor that. And if you're over 60, 20 milligrams is the highest prescribed dose. Okay, 20 milligrams. So we used to use 60 and 80. We thought it was like Prozac. So 60, 80 milligrams, no problem at all. Now it's 20 and 40. And, and if you uh, go above that and your patient has a complication, you're going to be in front of a judge perhaps, you know, and so, so take, these, take these recommendations seriously. Okay, so, so the bottom line with the STAR-D trial, and that's why I wanted to spend a little time, you know, just recapping it. If you failed three meds, so you know these patients in your panel who failed Prozac, Zoloft, and Paxil, and then you're coming, they're coming to you for, these are all prescribed somewhere else, and they, they're like, oh, doc, you know, you can help me. I know you're, you're amazing. Um, I know you're going to fix this problem for me. The chance of us getting to remission after you failed three meds, falls below 7% with another med. So at what point do you stop and think, hmm, you know, let, let me move to other options, okay? So I'll say that. So I did say Stardy was too simplistic. Um, Cipriani and her colleagues, she's based out of Portugal, did a beautiful study in 2008, and then a follow-up in 2018, a, a meta-analysis these are, of looking at all the meds out there and seeing which ones are best in terms of efficacy, so does it work, as well as tolerability. Is my patient going to tolerate it? Two measuring sticks I use with any medicine, right? Like uh, I wanna know if is amlodipine gonna you know, be tolerated and efficacious in lowering blood pressure? You know, what's HCTZ gonna do? So same, same idea, does it work and is it tolerated? And you can see the list. And escitalopram rose up to the top in the 2008 meta-analysis and it is here again in both the efficacy and acceptability. And when I first read this article, I was like, where do I get my hands on agomelatine? This bad boy is doing really well on both parameters too. Not available here. It uses the melatonergic pathway. So that's an active area of research that I think is really cool as well. Harnessing the power of melatonin um, to treat depression as well. Not available in this country, but um, pretty darn promising. Um, I did use uh, slides with with brand names on on here just for your familiarity. So you'll because you see the ads all the time, right? So this is just to keep you. Uh, I'm not promoting anything. I'm just for for recognition. So vortioxetine. So all of the newer antidepressants that you're going to see and patients are going to ask you about. Hey, I saw this ad on TV. I saw. I read this ad. What 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 do I what do you think about this? I want to just give you a couple of pearls on some of these of because these new medicines have to have some competitive advantage, right? And that's why they're advertising the heck out of it. And, and so in a, in a non-judgmental way, I'm just trying to present the data to you. So this medicine, vortioxetine has been out for a while, but it was known as Brintelix at the beginning. Maybe you remember that. It changed its name to Trintelix because it sounded too much like Berlinta that we use for um, uh, blood thinning properties. So cognitive enhancement is something that came out uh, with with this drug and and we were like hmm 
you know, I, I told you my research was in, in, in cognitive impairment for, for seven plus years. And so I was, I was deeply interested in this. And I said, well, I really want to see how it compares to other meds out there, right? No, don't just tell me that this helps with cognition. I want to see how it does against something else. And then when this article came out in 2016, I was I was more convinced. Um, so Vortioxetine versus Duloxetine, an SNRI, and they use this digit symbol substitution test. So you basically substitute a letter for a symbol, like a word jumble type, you know, exercise, and see how fast you can do it. And people did really well on this compared to the group using duloxetine. So very interesting um, to be sure. And um, so the, both of them worked well on the depressive symptoms. So equal, so that that's nice. But in terms of cognition, they, they scored better on these on these other rating scales. Interesting. So keep that in mind if you're like, wow, somebody's got you know mild cognitive impairment, uh, or or you know they're asking me for something. We have very little. We have precious little for people in this in this um, predicament, which is why again I, I I tried to you know help ASI a little bit. Um, but velazidone, Vibrid, um, it's it's another medicine that's been out for a while. Uh, are any of you seeing this medication being prescribed? Velazidone, uh, just a couple of hands. I don't see it very much, to be honest with you. Um, but you know, it, it, uh, what makes it special, right? It does have this novel mechanism as 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 it it is an SSRI, so it blocks a reuptake of serotonin in in the synaptic cleft, but also acts as a 5-HT1A partial agonist, so it affects the postsynaptic neuron on the 5-HT1A pathway. And by the way, there are like 27 some odd serotonin receptors that have been identified. How many dopamine, by the way? Somebody gets a chocolate from me afterwards. How many, how many dopamine receptors? Five. Five, very good. I owe you a chocolate. Excellent, excellent. Five, five dopamine receptors and about 27 some odd uh, serotonin receptors have been identified. So what makes velazidone special? Think weight loss and preservation of sexual function, because this is an in interesting small study out of India, but just came out last year, which added a little bit more impetus to this. They use this Arizona sexual experiences scale, the ASEX scale, and of course weights um, on, on patients. And these, so they compared, again, I love the trials that compare with active meds right, rather than just placebo. So here is a comparison group with velazidone and sertraline, and both had equal efficacy there with depression again, but velazidone did not cause the weight gain, which um, there was a five kilogram difference between the two groups, or sexual dysfunction according to the ASEX scale, and nearly eight points, which is pretty significant on that scale. Um, I'm not as familiar with it, but uh, it is uh, commented on as, as being very significant. So it's something to think about, again, um, Proof is in the pudding, you know, do your patients do well on it? Can they get it? Velazidone is it's older. These medicines are older now, but they're relatively new in the scheme of things. Levomilnasopran, some of you familiar with, uh, with Levomilnasopran, or actually Milnasopran or Savella for fibromyalgia patients? Do you see that in, in people? Maybe you've done a room stint or something. Um, people were using Savella or Milnasopran. This is a racemic mixture. This is an, an antimer of that medication, Milnasopran. So this is Levo Milnasopran. And um, it has a very strong, so a 17 to 27 times higher selectivity for norepinephrine compared to venlafaxine and duloxetine, some of the other SNRIs. So this is an SNRI, 
again, that has a very strong impact on the norepinephrine. So as internists, what do you guys think of? If you think strong norepinephrine effect, what are you worried about? Insomnia, perhaps. What about blood pressure? Blood pressure. Are venlafaxine and duloxetine associated with elevated blood pressure? Absolutely. As you raise the dose, you're recruiting more norepinephrine properties, and then you get more blood pressure elevation that happens. Now with, so that was my first question when I saw the levomilnasopran, hey, what does it do to blood pressure with this super strong effect on norepinephrine? And it's only about three to four points. Now, so if it's somebody with heart disease, we don't want to go there, right? We don't want to even three or four points on the systolic or diastolic pressures. We don't want to raise that. But, you know, in, in the average Joe, we, that's, we can have a little bit of wiggle room and, and monitor blood pressure. Is that fair? Okay. And it's available, um, most common effects, headache, nausea, so not even insomnia, but headache, nausea, hyperhidrosis, tachycardia, and constipation were the more commonly re reported adverse effects. Um, and 20 milligrams uh, for a couple of days, followed by 40 milligrams, and the maximum is 120 uh, with that medicine. So I mentioned this earlier, um, esketamine. Spravato is um, a, an NMDA antagonist again. Uh, it's, uh, so ketamine is not FDA approved for depression purposes. You'll see practices out there that are giving patients, you know, intravenous. I've, I've heard of, you know, uh, sublingual deliveries uh, of, of ketamine, et cetera. Um, but this is the FDA approved version of ketamine, so S-ketamine, um, and it's now indicated not just for depression, and so so just, just, to, just to let you know, patients need to be monitored. So this is not something you're gonna ever see in your practice unless you plan to monitor the patient for two hours. So you, you have to monitor them for dissociation because it's ketamine, but also for blood pressure. There's blood pressure lability that can happen, and we certainly don't want somebody to have a stroke or get to dangerous levels, but usually within two hours that dissipates but that's why it's it's under a REMS program and needs to be monitored and, and patients are, are enrolled in the REMS and, and all of that. So it's a big rigmarole, which is why it's taken me a little while. And there's a lot of controversy surrounding this drug as well. Um, but it's also not just approved for treatment-resistant depression. It's also approved for this thing called MDSI. Has anybody heard of this? Major depression with suicidal ideation. One of the few meds now within hours to a day that you can have resolution of suicidal ideation, which is why you're gonna probably see this being delivered a lot in emergency rooms and then transitioned out. Like somebody's acutely suicidal, we could save a hospital admission if we deliver this drug, cost $200 versus two grand for a night in the hospital, give this drug and then have them follow up on an outpatient basis. That would be, I think, an ideal if it works in the way that, you know, when, when the rubber meets the road in clinical practice, but people have been using it for a year. Some of my old colleagues back East are, are finding great success with it, which is why I, I'm not an early, early first adopter. I, I like to wait till the dust settles a little bit before I start to explore something. And so um, I'm there now. Um, although I will say one of my colleagues at the VA, Eric Turner, who uh, has been on all the all the big uh, news outlets uh, when this drug came out because he questioned whether this was a fair and balanced study. So there were three studies that went into approving esketamine. 
it was the strength really of one really good study and two meh studies that this was approved. So he questioned whether they weeded out some of the more difficult patients and questions we should ask, right? Uh, when we're when we're looking at this from an evidence-based framework. And so really good, uh, and that's what it slowed me down into in to like, hey, let's wait till I'm really seeing traction from my colleagues around the country. Is this working? Um, and only modest evidence, it works with no information about safety uh, beyond 60 weeks. And, and ironically, three people died by suicide during the clinical trials compared to none in the control group. So that always, you know, raises my my eyebrows a little bit too. When you're having a drug indicated, I mean, it's indicated now for MDSI, so suicidal ideation. But when we see this, it kind of gives me pause. The other drug, another board question for those of you who, are, who, who need to prep, board question on suicide, any other medicines that we use for depression that lower suicidal behavior. It begins with an L and ends in ithium. <laughs> All right, you got it. Lithium, yes, lithium with a number needed to treat of only 23. 23 patients we need to treat to reduce a suicidal act, which is pretty, pretty darn good. Um, if you think about an old school salt like lithium, so another another thing to keep in your mind if you're dealing with somebody with suicidal ideation you don't have access to this the the the, the double-edged sword though to lithium is it is fatal in overdose right so so balancing that out um so i want to keep you ahead of the curve i want to tell you about a couple of new meds that are in the pipeline that you're probably seeing i, I know i do all the time on medscape and, and some of these outlets so would you prescribe a new medication that has a clinical response rate, i.e. 50% improvement of 80% and a remission rate of almost 70%, so virtual absence of symptoms to the tune of 70% and fun functional improvements are substantial with that adverse effect profile? Would you be interested in a medicine like that? I know I was, and so I've been talking to them, but it's a. this is what's involved is a component of, of this over-the-counter medicine, dextromethorphan. Um, so Axum is a, is a company that's working on this, and you may have seen it again in the press. Uh, they're picking up on this because the data is very robust. So you can see this graph is kind of interesting. If you just take dextromethorphan by itself, very limited uh, plasma concentration, right? But if you pair it with bupropion, look at that. It sticks around. Right, and so the plasma concentration is there, and then you can see the robust improvement by week six on these research trials. And so this is a headline from uh, two weeks ago. So I put it in the talk, impressive results for novel antidepressant. So why the FDA delay? And the interesting part is the FDA did not request more information from the company about it. They're just, you know, reviewing it. So it's taking longer and, and you know, people have been asking about this since August, I think was when the, the data came out. And I know the FDA is busy with, with so many things, COVID, um, but, but you know, this is where delays are happening, but maybe, maybe for a right reason, I have no idea, we don't know. Uh, nobody's commented on, on what the delay is. Um, Brixanolone, I mentioned at the beginning, an IV formulation that we use in postpartum depression. So it requires two and a half days of a continuous infusion. Anybody seen this? 
Good, because you're not. It's not here yet. Uh, it's Swedish, I think, is the first one that that's. I think they're delivering it now this month or maybe next month. Um, they're going to be the first in the Northwest to trial this um, in postpartum patients. Let them have the the IV uh, drip uh, after they deliver, but. The company is working on an oral equivalent um, right now that's showing very promising results. So just keeping you um, uh, in the loop on that. Uh, and a final word on depression um, is TMS. Since since that's what I do uh, a lot um, and I, I, I believe in it, I do want you to know about it. Are you all familiar with TMS? Not as many hands. Yeah, and that's what... This thing has been out since 2008, and, and for thought leaders like yourself to go, eh, I don't know. I just want you to get some, some quick nuggets because when I showed you that if you failed in the STAR-D trial, if you get beyond three antidepressants and you have a less than 7% chance of getting somebody to, to recovery of symptoms, we need to think outside the box. That's when we need to think about ECT as an option, but TMS is another option. It's been out for over a decade. You know, 2008, it was FDA cleared for treatment-resistant depression. Now the other indications are anxious depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, and even smoking cessation. And I've been talking to neurosurgeons uh, left and right. They're all interested in post-stroke treatment. Imagine you treat the motor cortex with electrical pulses to somebody who can't move their right hand, and all of a sudden, this starts happening, that's, we'll, we'll put physical therapy on steroids if we're able to do that, right? Is, is you get that pulse and then all of a sudden the recovery starts to happen. That's where neurosurgeons and neurologists are very much interested in this technology as well. In 20 minutes for 36 sessions, we can get response rates in the 70% range and remission rates at 45%. And David Dunner, who's, um, He's a psychiatrist, uh, a very uh, uh, important guy in, in the Puget Sound area, has been doing work in this for a while, and I was on a call with him recently. He's like, all, all we're doing is treating the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, so right here, treat it for 36 sessions, so about six to eight weeks, and you get these responses that are durable for an entire year, okay? So it lasts. It, I, I don't want something that's going to you know, work for six weeks, eight weeks, and then, you know, they just go back to symptoms. I want it to be durable, and he was the one who put the durability. Yeah, question. So, yes, I will. So, uh, a resident was recently asked to do a medical clearance prior to uh, TMS in this case. What we are looking for is making sure there are, the only absolute contraindication is ferromagnetic material in the brain or 30 centimeters from where the coil is delivered. So you can have a vagal nerve stimulator. You can have a vagal nerve stimulator in the neck. That's fine. You can have a pacemaker here. That's fine. So anything metal. So if we got a report that there was some metal fragment or even a, a metallic tattoo or something, you know, on the eyebrows, you know, something like that, then you, you, or extensive dental work. I'm talking about Lil John type of extensive dental work, not, not like the fillings, right? Um, uh, I got some chuckles on that one. I, I have kids, I have teenage kids. What's that? Yeah, I mean, and, 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 you know, that's, it's fine. It, again, 
clearance is we we do the clearance we do most of the clearance we we do most of that and and again i'm an internist so i'm going to look at look at all of that uh, uh but but if somebody has had traumatic brain injury that's where it starts to get dicey i don't want to put a bunch of energy into somebody's brain where the pathways i'm worried about causing a seizure that's the that's the concern or if somebody's drinking that's where you're also going to see we want them sober because the people who have seizures with tms are people who have been closet drinking and they're withdrawing or or their alcohol consumption is up and down that's the that's the clearance maybe it's substance use and 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 metal Laura let me stop for for a couple of questions here how about that by the way this is what it looks like when we when we treat it's not just the surface of the brain it goes down to the deeper structures the limbic structures in the brain and then on down so it's a top down approach medications for depression is a bottom up approach you ingest it gets in your your system and it's working this way tms works this way and so it's meeting it in the middle and pounding the symptoms out of the brain does that make sense laura any questions yeah great as a first question maybe we'll stick with this topic of tms for the moment yep. and um you talked about referral of someone who has not had a response to multiple medications. Could you give us just a little bit more on perhaps um, who might be the ideal patient to refer and uh, anything specific needed in that process yeah. for people who are thinking about doing this from the primary care realm? And I'm assuming I don't need to repeat the question. The audience got it. Okay, great. So great question. It really is. Uh, so, so the latest uh, American Psychiatric Association meeting talked about we're we're waiting till people it depends on the insurance company it's covered by most insurances that's that's number one including medicare so if medicare is covering this they're seeing the value now not many places accept medicare my group does because we we believe strongly in giving the treatment to people who need it the most um so we're one of the few in the northwest that actually takes medicare but medicare does cover it um but it, it depends on the insurance company. Some of them want to see four medication failures. Medicare only requires one medication failure and one attempt at talk therapy. So one attempt at psychotherapy, that would be the ideal candidate to answer your question. Somebody who's failed, depending on the insurance company, typically two meds. They failed two meds and have failed psychotherapy. That's when insurance is gonna say, you are a suitable candidate because I showed you the STAR-D trial. If you keep prescribing meds, What's the definition of insanity? Doing something over and over again, expecting a different result. That is what we were doing with keep prescribing a different med, a different med, a different med. Med, re med, med responses really are individual, right? And so some people just don't respond to medic medicines. 45% in, in most of the research say they would fall into the treatment resistant depression category. And that's who languishes in our medical practices all the time, right? So that's suitable candidates. Anybody who's failed a bunch of medicines. Great, thanks. And just mm -hmm. one follow-up question to that. Can you comment on studies showing sham TMS also is helpful? So yes, there is. there are definitely sham controlled studies. It's really hard to do sham. Um, you know, I, I was doing clinical rating, I mentioned uh, in 2006, and I could always tell who was getting sham because it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, as deep a penetration, right? Then it would cease to be a sham. But if you're just tapping the surface, you know, people can often, you know, know that 
uh, it wasn't deep because it does feel when we start the treatment, it feels like a woodpecker's pecking on your head, right? So it's it's a tapping cessation that people quickly habituate to. So it's it's that oh okay, it's not as bothersome. You keep tapping, you know, and it's it's more like for four seconds, rest for eleven, for four seconds, rest for eleven. And so um, it's it's hard to do sham controlled studies, but in the sham ones, it, it did really separate very well from sham. Great. So I have about 50. Oh, by the way, this is Mark George's work. He's the grandfather in, in 2000, sorry, 1995. He's the first one who showed treating the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex actually works in depression. And he's at the Medical University of South Carolina. And he showed this one on the right is a PET scan of somebody with depression, not lighting up after TMS lights up like a Christmas tree on the PET scan. So that's very tangible tangible difference for a patient uh, in their brain brain activity. So here's some clinical pearls. I, I definitely wanted to leave you with these first before I get to antipsychotics, uh, and I may fly through the antipsychotic slides, but this is for, especially for those of you who are studying for boards and things of that nature. QTC monitoring, we mentioned citalopram, but ziprazidone or geodon, for those of you, it's a great trick. 20 milligrams of IM geodon, helps for those of you residents on the wards and, and you want to sedate a patient, but still keep talking to them versus I, 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 I am Haldol or something, they're out, right? They're out like a light. You can't talk to them. 20 milligrams of IM geodon is gonna allow you to, to continue to talk to the patient. They're gonna be calmer as they do so, but you need to know their QT intervals when you're doing that. Uh, the the um, very famed one, thyridazine, is always on 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 our psych psych exams. That's melaril um, QT prolongation. But even IV Haldol, we had a death at OHSU, our our intensive care unit, for somebody who was looking at the Washington Manual or, or one of the equivalents, and said, "Oh, keep keep escalating the dose with with Haldol to tranquilize the patient who is very agitated." And patient ended up dying of a QT uh, related arrhythmia. Um, so, so that's also something to, to, to watch out for. Lab monitoring. Since I, I've mentioned medical legal stuff, I, I do, I'm, I'm defending a, a, a provider right now who didn't check TCA levels and the patient ended up dying with uh, TCA level six times uh, upper limit of normal. So, so get into the habit. If you see somebody on an amitriptyline, nortriptyline, especially at high doses, don't be shy about checking a level. Checking, we do that with lithium, right? We're, we're used to as internists monitoring somebody, you, you see somebody who comes into you on lithium, you haven't seen a lithium level in over a year, go ahead and check a lithium level, please, to protect yourself. But think about the same thing with amitriptyline, nortriptyline levels. You know, that that really is good practice. And I, I teach my residents that all the time because we forget about it. Some neurologists put them on it for neuropathic pain, a TCA, but then the dose got escalated somewhere along the lines. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're they're um, at, a, at a high level and, and you wouldn't know it unless you check the level. Um, metabolic monitoring, that is an internist's responsibility typically because you're partnering with the psychiatrist um, who Patients never come back and follow up with us, but they're following up with you or vice versa. This is why I go to APA and teach all the psychiatrists. You guys need to be monitoring these labs as well. Don't just rely on the internist or family medicine doctor, but annual metabolic screening is always important if you see somebody on an atypical antipsychotic or any of these medicines. Okay, Not, not antidepressants, but antipsychotics. Make sense? Annual 
metabolic labs. And the one unsung question is, how often do you follow up your patient? So you're going to start somebody on sertraline. When do you bring them back? I want to make sure you've got best practices as you do this because the official recommendation is three visits in the first three months. So in the first 12 weeks, see them three times. How often is it actually happening? 14% of the time. 14% of the time. So it's pretty, pretty sad, but that's where go ahead and bring them back in, in a month typically because at the month, the, the common mistake I see with internists is you never raise the dose. So somebody gets referred to me and they're on 25 of sertraline. I'm like, okay, this is pretty easy. We just need to raise the dose, okay? And I, we're used to in psychiatry, ramping doses up quickly to get to therapeutic levels. Not, not insanely fast, but 50 milligrams for five days, 100 milligrams for another week, and then go to 150. But seeing them maybe at that two week mark is what we do in psychiatry. But bring them back, even if you did it half the speed, 50 milligrams for a week and then go up to 100 milligrams of sertraline, bring them back in a month. And if they're like, I can't tell anything. But remember, we talked about that. No, Not much activity was happening till now, but you're tolerating it really well. Let's bump you to 150. Psychologically, that does a lot. My doctor cares about me. My doctor is listening to me and hears that nothing's getting better. And you're doing something about it. That suddenly bonds you in tremendous ways. Okay? And that's when, boom. The, the, that improvement starts to happen. And you can always back down if they're like, whoa, that was too much medicine, back down. But see them, see them at intervals. Three times in the first three months, that, that was actually born out of all of the black box warnings for suicidal ideation, even for those younger patients. Remember, up to 24 is where the black box warning applies to children, adolescents, and young adults up to age 24, that there is a higher risk of suicidal, parasuicidal behavior, suicidal gestures in that group. So this monitoring, mandatory if you're dealing with a younger patient, especially one that has expressed suicidal ideation to you. Don't run in panic, just say, I'll see you back. Make sense? We're at the 50, 50 minute mark and I was worried about this because once I said start get going, I, I'm so passionate about antidepressants and, and, and giving you guys what you need. But really quickly, schizophrenia. When you see somebody with schizophrenia, know that they have a 25 year reduction in their lifespan just because of that diagnosis. 20, they're gonna live 25 years less than you and I simply with that diagnosis attached to their chart. So be very careful before applying diagnostic labels. And I wrote a piece, a thought piece on this many years ago in the annals of, of how we have to be careful before we label patients. It's called lessons from a label maker, if you ever uh, have a chance to look at that. But we, I was taught that it was primarily a dopamine pathway issue. But is it just a dopamine pathway issue? I am going to tell you this. This is important to get uh, with nine minutes left. Dopamine hyperactivity is certainly a problem in the mesolimbic, so deeper structures of the brain. But we're finding more and more that dopamine hypofunction at the surface, at the prefrontal cortex. Remember, I was mentioning the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So the surface, that's hypofunction, which we think is responsible for the negative symptoms of psychosis. So the flat affect, the apathy, all of that that you see in patients with schizophrenia, that could be the hypofunction of dopamine. And then the 
I'm hearing voices and I'm, I'm seeing things, that could be the hyperactivity in the more deeper structures of the brain. And that is where it leads to symptoms of schizophrenia, which is why all the new new medications, um, I'm going to skip this. This is a, a obesity review that I wrote, wrote a couple of years ago, which is still good because nothing much has come out of that uh, since then. But uh, obesity is a big problem in, in, in patients with schizophrenia. But medications, for example, like lumateperone, have anybody heard of this one? Brand new, came out in uh, December of 2019. You'll start to see it because all the research in antipsychotics, we're all trying to capture the next clozapine. I mentioned ECT is the gold standard for depression. The gold standard in antipsychotic therapy is still clozapine. And what do you remember from boards on clozapine? A granulocytosis, right? We have to monitor them. They're also on a REMS program, need blood work, you know, every week initially. And then, you know, we can space it out after that. But we're watching for agranulocytosis that can happen at any point. Suddenly their, their, uh, their white cell count just drops. But we're all looking for the non-agranulocytosis causing medication that is going to be like clozapine. So lumateperone is very interesting because it has 60 times higher affinity for serotonin rather than dopamine. So it's not a D2 blockade issue anymore. It's using pathways that are outside of dopamine. You get still some dopamine activity, but I just wanted to show you, and I'll end with this slide. So you see substantially greater affinity for the 5-HT2A receptor. So that's an antidepressant pathway, right? Then D2 receptor modulation greater than of clozapine with a 60-fold greater affinity um, for these uh, serotonin receptors compared to dopamine receptor. So a lot, you'll see all the new antipsychotics that are coming out will be like keys. They, they all look very similar, but very radically different. Only one key opens your lock, right? And so we're all looking for the lock that un, un, that opens up the brain of, of someone with schizophrenia, and that's what these new medicines are doing. But parting words for you guys is really monitoring their metabolic picture is your responsibility. And long-acting injectables, now we're getting to the point to just keep you informed. Long-acting injectable antipsychotics, are they a good idea? I think they're great. We're we're to the point where, for example, Trinza, which is a um, a product that uh, it has um, paliperidone as its parent compound, you can give the shot once every three months. So imagine controlling schizophrenia with four shots a year. That's where we're getting with long-acting injectables. So. When you see that, please, you know, get them to kind of continue that pathway. We have outreach programs that are that are trying to to make sure people are staying on their meds, um, etc. Oh, and I'll end there and answer questions. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Raj, for mm -hmm. keeping us on the front end of psychiatry. Um, I'll welcome questions from the live audience here. I'm also monitoring online, and perhaps while I wait for others to come in. Um, is frontal lobe traumatic brain injury associated with increased schizophrenia? That's interesting. So the whole Phineas Gage, um, you know, situation of personality change is, is certainly there. Um, any disruption to the brain, you know, any fracture of the brain, um, you know, can cause psychotic symptoms. That's for sure. We wouldn't call it schizophrenia if it has an organic 
organic origin to it. So again, it may sound semantic, but psychotic symptoms happen in patients with dementia, for example. That's not schizophrenia, right? And I wrote a piece in The Lancet about this too, is, is we have the dynamic, especially in the South where I was in, at Duke, we had white psychiatrists labeling African-American patient with schizophrenia where they didn't appreciate some of the cultural nuances, right? And so we have to be very careful about doing that and, and labeling this as schizophrenia. That's an organic brain syndrome. So it's not, it could be schizophrenia-like where you have auditory hallucinations, um, et cetera, and personality changes, um, just like Phineas Gage did. But, um, you know, that's a different different beast, if you will. Great, Great. question. Thanks for that important yeah. distinction. And we have some questions here in the audience. So. so I think we all know that ECT has been like negatively portrayed in cinema and is probably a missed opportunity in treatment of a lot of patients. And so can you kind of help us understand when we should be sending people for ECT rather than TMS or? Yeah, great, great question. So, so ECT, is great not only for treatment-resistant depression in the re refractory cases, but it is for bipolar disorder as well as schizophrenia, right? So if, if somebody's got a psychotic disorder, so, so what is ECT, by the way? In computer terms, it's a hard reset of the brain. When your computer is frozen, what do we need to do? We need to turn it off and turn it back on. That is essentially what ECT is doing. So anybody who needs a hard reset that has those three disorders, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or major depressive disorder that's that's impossible to treat, those three indications. So with TMS, for example, we don't have that indication in bipolar disorder. They're working on research in that area, but we often unmask bipolar symptoms because it's an antidepressant and we're putting energy into the brain. We run the risk of destabilizing someone with bipolar disorder. So ECT, to answer your question, is still very a very good pathway. Finding it and getting insurance to pay for it is another thing right? Because we only have a few few places that do it. OHSU, we do it. Um, I, I think you guys are still doing it at the Milwaukee. The Problem Milwaukee uh, group is still doing ECT over there and mainly geriatric patients, um, but um, not, not a lot of places are doing it. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on why Oregon ranks so low in mental health? Does it appear to be like, I mean, sometimes it feels like it's a lack of specialists. I think it's yeah, hard to get. Uh, that, that, is, that is part of it, yes. Uh, it's multifactorial. And the, the nice thing is I was recently on an Oregon Health Forum call with, with several lawmakers and they really do get it. Some of them are actually physicians and they, they see the problem. It's just, you know, the same kind of issues that contribute to homelessness. It's, it's tough because we, are a very permissive state when it comes to freedoms. And I think for right or wrong, you know, you can debate that. Um, it's a very different environment here than it was say in North Carolina where I could keep somebody in the hospital against their will for a longer period of time and sometimes to the betterment of their brain. Cause we call it freedom to allow somebody, if they're not imminently dangerous to self or others, we let them go from an, from an ED. Is it freedom to kind of walk around talking to, you know, um, unseen others and injecting yourself with meth? I'm not sure we can debate that. And so there's a permissiveness, I think, in, in Oregon society is what I've seen as a lifelong East Coaster in my 15 years here. That's different. That's different. That is, I think, 
partially contributory. But I think lawmakers are trying. They're trying to, but our state hospital, it's full. We can't get people in. So people languish in, in medical beds waiting to go to the state hospital. That's a problem. Yes, complex problem indeed. Complex. I want to be um, respectful of time. I know we're at nine o'clock and much of our virtual audience will be signing off. If there's a remaining question or two. I'm happy to lives, stick around for, for an extra couple can, minutes. We can yeah. stick a couple of minutes. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. Yeah, question in the back. Yeah, thanks guys. Appreciate it. Or even I can have you come down here and I'll, I'll put a mask on and we can talk.